0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Good to be with you all today to worship together. Um, I'm always grateful for another opportunity to preach. And as I was preparing for today, I thought back to the first sermon that I ever preached. It hasn't been too long, but it's about five years ago, I want to say, in front of a crowd of young teenagers back in Maryland. Um... And it's from the same text that we'll be reading today. And I remember choosing this text at that time because I felt that it was so profound. I heard someone explain it to me once and I was like, this is, this is it. Um, I thought this will blow everyone's minds because this was a game changer in how I thought about my faith and understood the Christian life. So this was it. This was the path to becoming a prolific preacher, um, making everyone laugh and cry Convicted of their deepest sins, and I was going to take the first step with that first, very first sermon. I was going to change the world, and it was going to be because of this amazing sermon. Because that's what naturally happens when you preach for the very first time. <laughs> Mind you, I'm not a very gifted public speaker, because I wouldn't be up here if it wasn't for the grace of God and the magnitude of God's word. Um, it wasn't ever something that I enjoyed know, group projects and presentations and things like that at school just made me cringe. And so I'm blessed to be able to hone this craft under the context of the gospel alone. Um, so as you can imagine, thinking back to that very first sermon, I got up there my very first time preaching. And just a few sympathetic chuckles here and there throughout the sermon. Polite head nods. Like, okay, good job. But overall, pretty tempted crowd. So no, I didn't start a revolution or a revival, but what stuck with me most from that experience was a mentor of mine just giving me feedback afterwards, just letting me know, hey, preach the text. Because what had happened was I was so caught up with delivering this point that I went into with this text, I had crafted in my mind thinking that this was the point of the passage that I just flooded the sermon with quotes and examples and illustrations and other books and things like that to make the point. So much so that I barely talked about the main text that beyond reading it from the beginning. Um, and so I looked back and I, I even printed out my old sermon notes from that sermon. And yeah, I really just touched upon the first passage in the beginning and then kind of forgot about it throughout. Um, and so all that to say, I hope that this time will be different not with regards to my speaking or anything like that, but that we'll dive into the text today because this text, I think, is still very profound Um, in the way that it presents the gospel to us and in the way that it presents the the word of God. Um, This text is the word of God breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. And so I hope to do that today as we dive into the word together. So why don't we all turn to Matthew 22, Uh, Verse 34 to 40, and I'll be reading from there. You can follow along with me. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. This is perhaps a text that we're familiar with in some way, shape, or form. You've heard some version of this text if you've been in the church for some time. And even if you haven't been in the church, even if it's your very first time, you might be very familiar with, some sort of version of this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And maybe the second more, more so, love your neighbor as yourself. But you see, the conflict and the drama of this text doesn't start there. It starts a few verses back in the beginning. It starts with a question. And actually, this is the third question in a set of questions that were asked of Jesus that very day. They sound like earnest questions trying to figure out this whole faith Christian life thing, but it's told to us that there, they, it was an attempt to test and trap Jesus. These questions weren't asked really for the proper answers, but these questions were deliberated and designed to create controversy. Now, why would the Pharisees and Sadducees want, ever want any kind of controversy? Well, as we know through the Gospel, Jesus had gained quite the following And people were amazed at his teaching and other stories. They've heard stories of his miraculous happenings that followed him, healings and things like that. The Jewish leaders and the teachers of the law were losing their platform, losing their grip on the people and authority and control over the people as they flocked to Jesus. And so they were jumping at every opportunity to bring him down a notch, to dialogue with him, to catch him in a trap that would damage his reputation and influence. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 15, it tells us that the Pharisees got together to plot how they'll entangle him in his words. And now these Pharisees are a group of religious leaders and teachers that we're probably familiar with through the Gospels. But they often tangle tangle with Jesus throughout the Gospels, and they saw themselves as the authority on the interpretation of God's laws. They held in very high esteem the laws concerning ritual purity And conducted themselves in the same way, denouncing impure and presenting themselves as pure. Later in verse 23, we see a different set of teachers, the Sadducees, who were in opposition to the Pharisees and yet still took issue with Jesus' ministry um, and came to test Jesus earlier that day as well. These were a group of religious leaders who held the law of God in um, highest authority Um, As opposed to the Pharisees, the Pharisees really honored their own interpretations of God's laws. And so you see a slight difference in how they um, moved. But the Sadducees mainly formed their doctrine on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Meaning the theme of resurrection and afterlife were kind of foreign to them. Um, It wasn't really on their radar as those kind of themes appear later in the Old Testament books. So they get together to ask Jesus a difficult question about resurrection. And so we see the Pharisees going at it, the Sadducees going at it. And then in our text today, we see the third question for the day in verse 34, which comes from the Pharisees after they heard that the Sadducees were silenced. They were defeated. But notice they don't go right away. The Pharisees don't go right away to Jesus after that. They gather together to deliberate on this next exchange. Who's going to ask the question? Well, A lawyer should do it, the expert of the law. What's he going to ask? A question about the law that will test Jesus and to not give him any opportunity to come out of it looking good. Or so they thought. And so they pose this question. Teacher, he says, probably in an overly flattering and condescending tone. Teacher, which is a great commandment in the law? hear that question i mean let me flesh out that question he's saying i the lawyer and pharisee who studies this law day and night am an expert in this law but why don't you teacher from humble nazareth tell me which law is the best law i mean do you hear the arrogance and the smugness there in the question but yet coupled with this attitude that was looking to take down jesus There is, I think, a genuine interest and intrigue from his position of how Jesus will answer this question. I mean, after all, Jesus had been captivating the minds of people with his teaching and gathering a following of people. And so the Pharisees, along with other Jewish religious leaders, had wrestled with this type of question in their context. I mean, surely, based on their laws, someone who violates the law by boiling a goat's meat in its mother's milk that's a violation, is not held to the same degree of offense as a criminal who commits murder. Surely there is some sort of weightiness between the laws. And so in some ways they are earnestly trying to figure out an issue that they themselves have difficulty dealing with, how it should govern their lives. They held to the 10 commandments and the 613 Jewish laws and wanted to see which one was most important. The lawyer would have been an expert at these laws and most likely recited certain laws every single day and devoted his life to memorizing these laws, understanding the complexities and challenges of interpreting this law. These Pharisees were looking for Jesus to undermine 612 of them by pointing to one as the great importance. But the underlying implication of this question that followed this question by asking which is a great commandment they're also implicitly asking which is the greatest sin which is the greatest offense it's hard and it's difficult and it's also terrifying to think of ourselves in this light but we have to recognize that we often question god in the same way which is the greatest commandment or which is the greatest sin you might be thinking, I've never asked that question. I've asked a lot of questions, but not that one. But we do. In our hearts and in our minds, we're constantly weighing our sins against others, trying to see if we come out holier than the next person. We see people poorer than, poorer than us, perhaps a homeless person, and think, thank God I store my money. Well, I'm hashtag blessed. We see people richer than us think, and think, I wonder if they tithe well. I wonder how much they spent on that thing or that thing. We see those standing in direct opposition to Jesus, those in the LGBTQ community, those pro-choicers, pro-abortionists, the racists, the bigots, the heretics, and so on and so forth, were disgusted and repulsed by their sin and their opposition to God. We see murderers and rapists on the news and think, how could someone do such a thing if you're a follower of Jesus, you would probably label yourself, a, label yourself a sinner. But, I mean, those people, those people that are directly opposing the faith, they are sinners. And this might not be you necessarily. It might go the complete opposite way for you, where you see righteous Christians, how they live their lives, how they seem so perfect on the outside and feel so inept. We read something from Tim Keller or John Piper and think why am I not living my life like that why can't my faith look like that and it goes the other way as well we look to the heroes of our faith who are ultimately trying to point us to Christ and make them our heroes instead of Christ himself every single day of our lives as we decide to treat people that come into our lives a certain way we fall into the trap of asking the same question that the Pharisees did Which is the greatest commit, Which is the greatest commandment? Or which is the worst sin? Whatever it is, I don't think that's me, right? Jesus tells us through his answer that it's not about that at all. They're completely missing the point. Jesus answers the Pharisees and shows them that they're asking the wrong question altogether which means we, too, are constantly asking the wrong question. It's not about how you or I measure up against anyone else. It's not even about how we measure up against the law of God itself. Rather, Jesus tells us the great commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You see, the Pharisees want to navigate through the laws and make sure he has weighed them properly and categorize these laws based on their understanding. And Jesus tells them, you are not understanding the whole point of the law itself in the first place. You are called to love God. And he continues on to say that there's a second command. It's like the first one. The second great commandment is to love your neighbors as yourself. And in this context, he isn't exclusively talking about next door neighbors, although they too are included. Neighbors as an all-inclusive term to include those in your life, those that you cross paths with even those that are directly opposed to you. Luke's account of this this narrative tells us that Jesus immediately followed this teaching with the Good Samaritan parable, which if you've heard it, it speaks to not just interacting kindly with your neighbors, but even sacrificing your time, energy, resources, and self to love someone else that may even be hostile to you. And upon these two commandments, loving God and loving others, Jesus says in verse 40, depends all the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament at that time, the entire word of God. Jesus is digging into the hearts of the Pharisees as they ask this question. He is reminding them of the words that they are reciting every single morning. Part of the words that they're reciting every morning is, To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. As we find in Deuteronomy 6. He's reminding them as they ask this question with a malicious heart that the law of God was not given to measure ourselves better or holier than anyone else. Jesus is reminding them and us that the law of God is given for love. At every turn of the page of scripture, God is telling a beautiful story of the gospel, that the story that we seek to tell here each week it, through the liturgy of our worship service and through the preaching of God's word, that the story that God is holy, that he is perfect and holy creator of the universe. He spoke the world into existence and breathed life into mankind to be as image bearers among creation. But we sinned fall short of the glory of God and we wandered away from God's love and sought to please ourselves. We still do. And we began to worship the creature rather than the creator. After all, worship, in a sense, is the display of our affections and our love and our desires. Worship is where we show our love. Worship is where our love resides. And there our worship resides as well. Seeing this brokenness, God sends his only son, Jesus, to make a way for for us. Jesus saves us through his incarnation, his life, his, his obedience, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus calls us into salvation by way of his grace through faith in him. And now in new life with him, we're restored into God's kingdom, called his sons and daughters. We're invited to his feast as his guests, and we're blessed to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. This is a story that we rehearse and remember here each week that we strive to tell. This is a story that we forget each week as trials of life come our way. And this is a story that the Pharisees were in the midst of seeing unfold before their eyes. And this is the story that the law of God also seeks to tell. God's laws are a law of love. For Summer Life Group, we've been going through a book called Reforming Joy which has been awesome to go through. And this past week's chapter actually talked about the concept of faith alone, one of the tenets to come out of the Reformation. And as the author Tim Chester is laying out his argument, he makes the point that everyone has faith in something, that everyone is trying to find salvation in some way. It may not be the salvation through Jesus that we might picture, but... That people have different pictures of salvation different versions what fulfills and satisfies their desires and I wanted to quote this he writes with every version of salvation comes a rule or a law I will get salvation if I fill in the blank there if your idea of salvation is being accepted by friends then your rule will be thou shalt be cool If your idea of salvation is a beautiful home, then your Bible will be Better Homes and Gardens magazine. Your law will be vintage furniture, tiled floors, distressed paint, clean lines, white walls, and no clutter. If you want to be adored by the opposite sex, then you'll have a list of dietary laws, an exercise regimen, a style guide. It may not be the law of Moses, but everyone is trying to be justified by the works of the law. And the question that the Pharisees ask with an intent to trap Jesus reveal in us a great, great, deep offense against God. It reveals to us that our loves are misguided and misplaced. We, like the Pharisees, are trying to be justified by the works of the law when Jesus has told us that we are missing the point and he is trying to show us a better way. And so the main point I want to communicate with you from our text today is this. It's simply to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, love others as yourself. Now love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What does that mean? Jesus doesn't tell us this to start a philosophical discussion on what makes up the whole person but he is trying to portray that we are to give our whole affection, our whole love, our whole self to God. God created us from the beginning for this relationship because he has formed mankind in his own image. There is a deep groaning within ourselves that wants love, that wants to love, and our hearts are craving to worship. Because that is exactly what we're designed to do as His image bearers. And piece by piece, we give and place our affections on other things other than God. But in His patience and in His kindness, He gently reminds and demands His people over and over again. We hear this throughout the Old Testament time and time again. You will be my people and I will be your God. God has demanded this from the beginning that we love the Lord with, Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And we're called to love God with the full capacity of our love. Oftentimes, that's not the posture of our hearts. In fact, we say here at Holy Cross that this is the exact reason that we gather to worship, because we're prone to forget this truth. In our brokenness as sinners, we're blinded by other desires, And allow our hearts to run rampant as idle factories. So I apologize if this is a lot of what I have to say feels repetitive or just feels like church jargon. But this is really the frailty of our hearts. That even as we're aware of our shortcomings, fully aware, we still forget that and we wander away to other loves. So we must be vigilant with our posture of our hearts. That we're submitting our brokenness, and reorienting our affections to Christ alone each day through the word of God and through prayer. God gives this law to his people, not to restrict them, but because he loves his people. He's quick to remind the Israelites as he gives them the law. We see this passage come up in Deuteronomy 6, as I mentioned earlier, and Jesus himself quotes this, But we see that in Deuteronomy 7, the following chapter is a reminder to the Israelites that they were not chosen because of anything that they did. They were not chosen because they were a larger, more powerful nation. They were simply chosen because God loves them. You see, God gives them these laws to follow, not as a restricted people, but as a free people. That these laws are not there to govern and oppress people or a struggling people, God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments for the first time ever after they're brought out of Egypt, after they've been freed from slavery. God gives these laws that they would live as his people in the promised land that that he gives to them. And these laws were in place to show a group of enslaved people coming out of that how to live as free people. You see, people often see rules and restrictions as restrictive. But just as a parent would not let a young child drive a car or run out to the street through traffic, these rules give us proper boundaries for free people to live a harmonious and joy-filled life. I mean, the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. And it's probably because it would probably be a good thing for people to not kill each other. God did not rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt to bring them into anarchy and chaos. God calls us out of the darkness, not so that we could enter into slightly less darkness, but that we would enter into his marvelous light, the freedom in life that is ordained by the creator and giver of life itself. And so God's laws give us a proper boundary of freedom to live in his kingdom. And the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all of ourselves gives us a proper direction for our worship, for our affections. It aligns our misguided loves and it points us to the God who has called us. God chose his people not because of anything that they did, not because they were better in any way, but simply because he loves his people God first loves us. God initiates with us. God shows us his love and gives us his law that we would know love and know how to love. Jesus gave the most loving answer in this moment that he could possibly give to the Pharisee, the Pharisee who sought to bring him down. As the Pharisee asks, Teacher, which, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus answers with the truth that we all need to be reminded of, that the Pharisee needed to be reminded of to return our affections to its proper place. Not about following the law to the dot, but ultimately about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This loving answer is not something that the Pharisee deserved. He was coming at Jesus to attack him, to test him, to egg him on, and to trap him in a controversy. And we must remember, again, to be reminded that this is us. We ask this question every day in order to justify our actions, our sins, our disobedience. Because surely, whatever my sin is, it can't be bad as that other sinner. But the fact of the matter is, every single one of us, in the same way, falls short. We are all sinners. I'm in a position of ministry at this church and as a worship director and preaching in front of you right now, and I can say I'm the worst sinner here. God's law not only sets up a boundary of freedom and love for us, but in his great love, it also convicts us of our sins. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 7, I would not know what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. God's law, in his love, exposes sin in our lives and reorients our hearts, souls, and minds to its intended and proper direction to God himself. And so the first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he says, a second is like it. This is probably the more difficult passage for us on a day-to-day basis. Even as mature Christians, we strive to love God, to read the Bible, to pray, to participate at church, give regularly, and just do all the things that we can do to devote ourselves to God, whether genuinely or not. But then we throw other people into the mix, and it gets challenging. I have a few different hobbies, and one of my favorite hobbies is food, as some of you guys might know. I truly do enjoy every aspect of food, whether it's eating it, cooking it, shopping for it, um, taking pictures of it, talking about it right now, watching shows and movies about it. We recently did that. And so food is something that I clearly really enjoy. And yet, when my wife and I first got in the kitchen together to cook for the very first time, the first few times, we found that it wasn't very fun. I pushed her away from helping me um, and from sharing in something that I really enjoy because I wanted to enjoy it. This is something that only I can enjoy and she can enjoy separately by eating the food I make. (laughs) And you see, because we're worshipers by nature, when our affections and loves are properly directed at God and we have a passion for it, we know that's good. But because we're also sinners, we're so good at taking something that is meant to be a blessing, that is meant to bring joy into our lives, and we douse it with our own selfishness. God designed relationships, not, not individualism. God designed relationships and community that we would be his image bearers in relationship with one another, just as he is in relationship with with himself in the persons of the Trinity. It's not good for the man to be alone as God gives him a wife. And from that household comes a family, then a tribe, then a nation, then ultimately a kingdom. God is not in the business of raising individualistic zealots, just solely devoted to him. But God is concerned with raising up a community of people to be a part of his kingdom. So this means that our love for others is not born out of effort and good manners. It doesn't come from us because we're sinners, because we're broken. We don't have that kind of love to offer. Rather, it's an overflow of the love that God has first displayed to you and I. Hence, the first and great commandment is not a separate commandment. It's not a separate commandment. It goes together with the with the second, first and second go together, because the second is like it, that as we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we're reminded of and reoriented by the love that is first poured out for us. And that love is a catalyst for our loving of others. You see, loving others is not a secondary option or a clause in Jesus's command. It's a vital part of our obedience to the whole of God's laws because upon these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything that God has spoken, whether it is law for governing or for living or prophecies for the hope of Messiah and the coming kingdom, all of it, all of God's words is a vehicle for God's love and the unfolding of his great story. And so loving others is naturally an overflow of God's love for us. It's our act of love and obedience for God and his commandments that drive us to love others. So in closing, returning to the question that the Pharisee asks, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Or, in other words, which is the greatest sin? We see that the answer that Jesus gives is Simple, yet deeply profound and prescriptive in the way that our lives and our loves are to be aligned. So I could see why the James that was preaching five years ago for the very first time chose this text to preach. Because this is life-giving and loving for us to know this and to be reminded of this. But we have to also recognize as we hear it, that it also leaves us at a loss. While we are able to recognize the sin in our hearts that cause us to ask this question, if you've lived life, any of it, you know how difficult it is to love. To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that's daunting. And that we should show love to those around us as an overflow of that love, even more daunting We definitely fall short of that. Not only that, but Jesus tells us that all of God's words depend on these two commandments. Does that mean how well we obey in loving God and loving others determines our faith? In short, yes, it does. It does depend on how well you're able to love God, how well you're able to love others around you. But the good news of the gospel, the reason that Jesus is there is that he came to fulfill the law, not to, not to abolish it. And he alone, he tells us, is able to fulfill it because we see his life. He was tempted, but yet did not sin. He loved God and obeyed every single law and every single command. He loved God that he obeyed everything, knowing full well that it would lead to certain pain, suffering, and death he loved God in that way. And as an overflow of that love, he loved others, not just those that he interacted with, not just those in his circle that he was comfortable with, but Jesus extended his love to those that were in violent opposition to him. He spoke truth into the world and displayed a kind of love that the world has never seen before. Jesus displays what he describes as the ultimate love for others by laying down his life for them, by taking the sin of all others, and by taking on the punishment that was due for those sins. He takes our place in death because only his perfect obedience and righteousness was worthy to redeem sinners. Beginning at the incarnation and through his life, death, resurrection, and all the way to ascension, Jesus embodied in human form the love of God, so that he might fulfill the law of God. So if you're not a Christian with us today, thank you for joining us today and participating with us. And I invite you to hear this good news of Jesus Christ for the, maybe the first time, maybe the hundredth time, that these are our Christian laws and principles to love God and to love others and that we all do fall short. But the good news is of the gospel is that it's not dependent on us. Jesus through his death and resurrection has clothed us with his obedience and righteousness so that we could be counted as righteous. God invites sinners to come and hear his story. The story that Jesus has revealed it and cling to him rather than anything of our own. He wants a loving relationship with his people And I challenge you to pray with me to consider God's love for you. And for you Christians, sisters and brothers in the faith, I challenge you to once again be reminded of the depth and the height of God's love for you. He's given you, he's given us a law of love, designed for love, revealed by love, and motivated by love. May the love that God has revealed to us first continue to sanctify you in your love for God and your love for others. May we learn to be patient and long-suffering in our loving as God is with us. May we grow in kindness and gentleness in our loving as we see the God of the universe carefully and gently love his people. I came across a quote that really helped me digest this sermon as I was preparing for it by Pastor Scott Salls, and he says if I'm growing in grace, that means I'm becoming more bothered by my offenses than I am by yours. If I'm growing in grace, that means I'm being bothered more by my offenses than I am by yours. So may we continue to grow as a church in grace as to not weigh our sins against others, but instead to weigh our love against God and others, that we might grow in love for God, might grow in love for others, as we have been loved through Jesus Christ.